Welcome to From What If to What Next, broadcasting from the only kind of nation that tears down borders rather than building up the, to repurpose the very old joke, imagination. If this is your first time listening to an episode of this podcast, you're most welcome. Make yourself at home. I hope you feel over the next 40-something minutes as though you've just signed up at a new gym, but this is one that's about getting your imagination into shape. Think of me as your personal trainer. What makes it possible for me to make these podcasts is the wonderful folks who subscribe at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. Perhaps once you've listened to this, you might be inspired to join them. Please do. In his classic song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, Gil Scott Heron wrote, The revolution will not be televised, the revolution will not be rerun, the revolution will be live. All of which, of course, may or may not be true. But in the next 10 years, for a large number of reasons, it will absolutely need to feel like living through a revolution. A revolution in how we feed, house, power, employ, organise ourselves. A revolution of the imagination. It always struck me that when imagining that revolution, the nuts and bolts stuff, the solar panels, the bike lanes, the vegetable box schemes are the easy bit. The far harder bit is how we get people to work together in order to create them. It recently struck me that the line that was perhaps missing from Gil Scott Heron's song was, the revolution will be well facilitated. Perhaps if he were writing it now, that's what he'd call it. If I've learnt one thing over 14 years of involvement with the transition movement is that facilitation really matters, that groups need those skills, that movements need to absorb into their DNA the ability to create a whole culture where everyone learns how to facilitate. And so, the question that will underpin our conversation today is, what if the revolution was well facilitated? I'll start by introducing my two wonderful guests. Fazana Khan is a writer, director, cultural producer and award-winning arts educator. She's the co-founder and director of Healing Justice London. She has a background in youth and community work, particularly focused on arts-based education projects both in the UK and internationally. She was also the former creative strategic director at Voices That Shake and is currently a fellow at the International Curatorial Forum. Recently, in collaboration with the Stuart Hall Foundation, she launched and curated the Black Cultural Activism Map. She was recently awarded a writer-in-residence at Toynbee Hall, working on All Water Has a Perfect Memory, a screenplay exploring trauma, poverty, womanhood and bodily dignity amidst gentrified East London and ecologically violent times. And Luby McNamara has been teaching permaculture for nearly 20 years. During this time, she's been a pioneer of personal and social permaculture, authoring the first book globally to focus on the people care ethic, people and permaculture. She's also author of Seven Ways to Think Differently and Strands of Infinity. And her latest book, Cultural Emergence, shares a pioneering toolkit for regeneration and transformation. She runs Applewood Permaculture Centre with her partner Chris Evans. She's also one of the partners of the European Mother Nature Project, Empowering Mothers. Luby has been an active member of the permaculture community and was chairperson of the Permaculture Association and is a senior diploma tutor. Welcome both to From What If to What Next. Yeah, thanks for having us, Rob. Thank you, Rob. So I'd like to start by inviting you both to do an exercise that we always start this podcast with. I'd like to invite you both and everyone listening to close your eyes and to imagine that I've just turned on a time machine and that you're travelling forwards nine years into the future, to 2030. That 2030 that we travel to is no utopia, but it is the result of everything that we could possibly have done 
being done. The transformation has been profound in a way that felt unimaginable back in 2021. Change built and built and built and old systems fell away or were pushed to one side and replaced by infinitely better ones. The 2030 you arrive in feels very different. It's a zero carbon, more equal, just, fair, diverse, delicious and connected world. There's a far stronger sense of shared purpose and endeavour. It's a world that we have managed to create because of good facilitation. It's what got us here. And it's now what underpins how the world works, how communities, politics, business, culture, everything works. It's the water we now swim in. I'd like to invite you both to give us a taste of how that world appears in your imagination. What does it smell like, taste like, sound like? How is it qualitatively different from today? Take us on a walk around and describe what you see in a day in the life. Fazana. I am feeling into 2030 that authenticates and allows us to feel true and allows us to be that there is safety in my body that there is what christina sharp and i often described of living in the wake so as we've imagined and conjured and facilitated this world we aren't escaping but we're becoming honest about the reparative work that has to be done the healing that has to take place in our body, the nurturance that has and is supporting us to be in community with one another, the anti-oppressive and intersectional ways and practices and skills that we are practicing with one another that allows us to be in community. In this 2030, we haven't looked away and we haven't ignored, but we have allowed ourselves to feel deep dignity. And I think, and I feel more than anything out in the world, how it looks, how it feels, how it smells, the commitment and the curiosity to safety within and our bodies, particularly because of our recent histories, what has been done to our bodies is the thing that I'm feeling into the most, that sense of bodies being dignified, feeling joy, feeling play, feeling curiosity and creativity and having opportunities for expression of all of these things. Thank you. Thank you. Luby. Mm. Yeah, I, I sense this flow and ease and effortlessness and this sense of uh, human beings being like a, a murmuration and just coming together and pulsing and like these concentric rings of calmness that have evolved through us being in that safety that Fazana talks about that that sense of being held in finding our own gifts and our own niches and our own skills and talents so that we are able to shine and shine in a way that supports other people in their process and in the process of us 
coming together and it, I feel it in my body as well this this sense of being well facilitated it is a bodily sense and the the two cultural emergence principles that I think would really become embodied through everyone learning facilitation skills would be emergence happens in relationship so that through these coming together in these circles that are well held and well facilitated we understand how to create these harmonious relationships that take us to a new level of understanding and being and so they tip us into this revolutionary state of being that is emergent and takes us to surprising places and then the other one would be be attentive to timing and that we all have this understanding of how to work with the rhythms of nature and work with our own rhythms on our own energy levels and the group's energy levels and flows so that we have this ease and focus and flow and effortlessness and that we're then able to self-organize and uh, and also co-regulate and co-organize together in in groups so that our ability to manifest community projects is is just like that we know how to do it we know how to come together to connect as a group to do practical tasks to stay in harmonious relationship with one another and this is on all scales from being at school to being in the workplace to being in our towns and villages to to governments as well because of course it's that revolution has taken place on all levels as well so our our organizations our businesses our governments all of that has been revolutionized as well thank you thank you both so much so so i'd like to start by asking you both what is good facilitation how would you recognize it when you see it uh luby well the word for facilitate comes from like making easy and that is where the facilitator is almost invisible so you almost don't recognize it when you are being well facilitated it's it's almost like um you know dusting you notice dusting when it's not ha- happened rather than when it has happened um and the same with people care and the same with facilitation that almost when it's done really well you almost don't notice it at all because you're just held and you're relaxed and you maybe don't understand where's that sensation coming from but it's coming from being held in a container that allows expression and freedom and and uh, spontaneity and creativity within the boundaries of being authentic and creative and within ethical boundaries as well for yourself and for the group beautiful thank you fazana i really appreciated rob when you expanded the revolution will not be televised to the revolution will be facilitated um to what i would build upon that is actually the revolution would be embodied and practiced those are so i, I you know there's actually means that say the revolution will not be facilitated <laughs> so and and then i agree with some parts of that too um the embodiment and the opportunities to practice and and with that kind of framing that facilitation 
presents and provides opportunity to practice and to embody, I think about great facilitation as restoring agency, as opportunities where collectively with the, the boundaries and the containers that allow us to feel safe that Luby's also pointed to, that we get to hone in and harness, particularly for communities that have been marginalized, that are subject to marginalization, that are harmed, that are experienced multiple forms of violence and who we're calling in the revolution for, then it is to create that kind of opportunity to restore the agency that gets diminished from the types of violences that are experienced to then be able to create and shape new imaginaries, new futures without reproducing and to be able to be attentive to what needs to be unlearned, what needs to be undone and to practice the new ways with one another and amend and practice and live and try with one another and feel into. So that's what I see good facilitation do. And also that it allows us to find our edges but doing that, we, we talk a lot around, you know, we have these whole facilitation principles and healing justice, but what, one that we've been really, you know, connecting with in, in our recent kind of facilitation, organizing and community work is really about consent and consent in the ways that, again, we get to practice agency, we get to practice being free. And what are the ways in which consent and trust is constantly reinforced interpersonally, intimately within oneself and then within the structures that we are creating. So I think that's also something I'd like to hold in this space too. Fazana, you work a lot in the arts space. I wonder how can arts and practices from the arts add to and, and enhance the facilitation of community initiatives? What are the unique things that art can bring to how we facilitate? Art is a site of inquiry and it is a site of knowledge. And so absolutely, and, you know, the exercise of imagining and Angela Davis, you know, talks about this, you know, we are living in the imaginaries of those long gone before. And we, some people will live in our imagine, the imaginations that we create. So it's absolutely essential to be able to vision, to be able to dream in, to be able to, um, have opportunities to exercise the muscle of creativity and curiosity. But more importantly, when we think about it in the context of community organizing or revolution or, or actually like structural and deep change, when we look at it through the lens of those who have been oppressed and marginalized and who experience harm, the capacities to dream, to be curious, to see oneself in a future, to believe that one will exist beyond the moment, get diminished because of the relationship between trauma and our survival states and the ways in which we navigate our reality. And it's not that folks aren't imagining because some of the most creative people are the people who've survived oppression and, and the state violence and all of these things. But actually, it's to be able to do that from a space that is not reactionary, to be able to do that from a space that is resourced internally and externally in a way that is capacious and so I think that there is an, an undeniable link between art and and organizing and the faculties by which we reconfigure the world 
but then there's also a deep first piece of work around how access to that, the dynamics of power diminish that we have to also start being really honest about and work on. And then we get to luxuriate in the creating and the, the building and the dreaming. I often, a lot of the times when we talk about community building in relation to oppression or harm and, and, and the status quo, everyone who ever says, well, this is how it's done is always from a, you know, a poverty of imagination. Like it's because they can't sense or feel into another way. And then also the courage it takes to leap in towards those other ways. So I think that there is something about the absence of imagination that also holds us captive to things that we would want to be changing. So Luby, it feels to me like compared to the activism of 20 years ago, you know, when you and I first came across the permaculture movement and more recently movements are so much better at recognising that good facilitation needs to be the organisational DNA from the outset. When you think of an organisation that does facilitation really well or a movement that does facilitation really well, uh, when you think of what that looks like, which organisations or movements come to mind? Well, I'm immediately thinking about the Permaculture Association in the UK and just uh, was thinking about their recent online educators gathering where even on Zoom we were being well facilitated. Um, We were invited to be in a play space, invited into what our bodies needed to do in this space, invited into breaks, invited into collaborative communication even online so it it was the adaptability there that that came to mind of how it's not just like let's do what we always do it's like how do we translate it into the context we're in at this moment and that's what I think facilitation good facilitation helps us do is to be adaptable to whatever is in that moment with the group whatever that is and that it then will teach us all to be adaptable which is what we need to adapt to a revolution because often we say oh we want a revolution but please don't take away my morning coffee or don't take away this habit or that habit and so we have to become comfortable in being challenged and disrupting our patterns of thinking and behaving that then will enable new things to arise. And so I think good facilitation helps us to both challenge ourselves and be comfortable in that challenge. Uh, So I think David Holmgren describes it it as being um, comfortably uncomfortable. So it's not taking us into this kind of fear or panic zone. It's taking us into a a stretch zone, which we all need to do to we'll never get to the revolution if we stay in our comfort zones. Thank you. Thank you. Fasana, if there were movements that you were to bring to mind as being the best facilitated movements uh, or organisations you've come across, what would come to mind? I think in the UK, there are lots of different spaces that have different ways in which I think they've drawn out strengths of facilitation. I think London Renters Union are doing some really impressive work and you can see that in the way that they've been mobilising so many different communities and connecting with lots of 
different struggles from disability to housing to, to Palestine to land justice. I think that, that the evidence of their ability to move with people and travel with people is a testament to that, that kind of organizing style. I think though there has been lots of different efforts. I think right now, even when we're looking at Sisters Ankar, we're looking at Black Lives Matter, we're looking at Resist and Remember. I think there's lots of folks who are really engaging, um, including ourselves at, at Healing Justice, around what it means to facilitate and to facilitate holding an intersectional abolitionist framework that is really doing that work of like dismantling structures, learning about harm reduction, understanding trauma, and that they were not all on neutral ground, that not all of us have the capacities because that's been taken away from us. And then what does it mean to do the reparative and remedial work first stage? I also have to recognize voices that shake because a lot of what I have developed in terms of facilitation skills has come from the 10 years of being in community with folks at Voices That Shake who have fleshed out different edges of a community building and practice and through facilitation. Mm. Voices That Shake is a beautiful name. I think I love that. One of the things I sometimes dream about is that if we're going to achieve change on the scale we require, we need to be massively training up huge armies of facilitators. Maybe armies is the wrong word, but murmurations of facilitators who could pour out across the country sharing their skills. How might we achieve that? How might we hugely expand the number of skilled and patient facilitators? I think I struggle with whether it's facilitators we need, and I think it's, it's, it's okay to hold that. I think there's something about civic and personal agency to be able to drive with consequence, like to be a body, especially if you're a racialized body or a working class body where your actions often don't have consequences because there's not power attached to it. So I don't know if facilitators is what we need, but a collective and public consciousness that tunes into Again, that restoring of agency, the ability, the structural capacity for people to be of consequence. Because what I'm also sitting with is that the savior complex, which operates across all paradigms of oppression, and it can be very subtle and it can be very nuanced and it can also be very explicit. And I'm really curious about how we disrupt the giver-receiver dynamic and how we create greater equity in our relationships where it's much more cyclical. I guess what Luby was talking about earlier when around the rhythms and the times of oneself is that there is times in our lives where we are supported, where we lean on and we lean in and we are guided and people's expertise steer a space and it's much more rotary. And there's other moments where our skill sets, our ability to lead, our ability to take responsibility, our expertise, our drive, a particular thing. That's the way that I see it much more. I mean, I would find, as a facilitator, I would find it terrifying to have an army of, of facilitators. And I would much rather enjoy all of us in a deep, dignified, um, consequential way that each of us 
we're able to exist in equity. Thank you. Thank you. Luby, any thoughts on that? I guess there's there's the informal and formal facilitation. And if we think about the informal facilitation of being able to hold space for other people in whatever situation that is, whether it's with our family and friends or in the workplace, um, then then it, it's about kind of making it transparent and explicit what that is so that you understand it and can then do it in an informal way. Um, so I, I think being explicit about those skills in schools etc and colleges that you learn it from an early age. Fazana, you talked about you talked about trauma earlier. One of the one of the challenges when facilitating movements and community organisations and processes is the unresolved trauma that, if unaddressed, can do great damage to groups and to the possibility of moving forwards in a good way. How does good facilitation work with with trauma? Where what what have you seen as the best examples of good practice of working with trauma? So trauma often is understood in this kind of very. I think it, people often talk about it and then often use it in a way to pathologize one another, which is also not useful, given how diverse our realities and our experiences are. So I want to hold that context before you know we talk about trauma. We have to think about also those of us that are often seeking change and transformation are also refusing the reality right now because something about it isn't working. And when we think about trauma and all of us whole trauma because of the structures that we exist in, uh, as well as generational trauma, as well as, you know, incidences that may have been traumatic. What I know, I want to say that I know in this, in this context is that having a trauma-informed practice enables facilitation because firstly, it helps us connect with the ways in which people relate to or express distress and overwhelm and you know Luby when you were talking earlier about I guess that I guess that bandwidth of sitting with discomfort you know we come from entire colonial histories that have made us disembodied we don't access our emotional faculties so it can feel safe to feel discomfort that our bodies are also routinely brutalized and that's the space in which change and transformation takes place including our imagination And so when you're using a trauma-informed practice, you're broadening out the capacity to, one, meet people, for people to meet themselves. And things that, like, just practical things that becomes more possible when we have a trauma-informed way of facilitating. If you're in a survival state of fight and flight, your capacity to listen and collaborate is diminished. You might be in a survival state that has forced you to disassociate or to freeze. So to be able to contextualize, and this is often what happens when you're in forms of overwhelm and distress, is that you localize, hyperlocalize is a biological response. You have to go into preserving the I, the self. And when we're trying to build together, when we're trying to facilitate something together, what you're also opening up pathways for is those sites of um, of collaboration, of listening, of being able to contextualize um, that are necessary for building and facilitating towards change. 
And that's also not to shame or disregard the responses that we have. You know, sometimes the response, the survival response to fight is completely appropriate. It can be mobilizing. It can be appropriate to disrupt, to call in revolution, to dismantle, to get us onto the streets. And so there's an appropriateness to our physiological responses. And more than that, I think the project of trauma-informed processes is to help us access our whole selves as much as is possible. And when we want just sustainable, dignified futures, in those futures, we want to be able to be our whole selves. And so that's, I think, a really important part of what trauma-informed practice allows us to do. And I and who you said does that really well. And I want to credit and acknowledge Lumos Transforms, but in particular Enkem and Defo, whose leadership in trauma work, particularly on the intersections of, of social justice and change and transformation, has um, you know, been a map for many of us. Thank you. Thank you. Luby, what's your sense of that? One of the challenges in inviting people to become a facilitator whether that's informal or formal is the imposter syndrome that happens that sense of I'm not good enough I'm I can't do this who am I to facilitate and so I think that is one of the the limits to getting this murmuration of facilitators is to actually demystify the process and demystify the the roles though so it isn't like this on a pedestal role it's like actually we can all embody it and and learn the tools and become facilitators mm, thank you i know that's something in in transition network in in the team there it's that thing of all taking it in turns to be facilitators for different meetings and and you know making it as straightforward for everybody as possible um these are skills that need to be taught from a young age so they can be natural to the way that we function in the world, I think. What would our education system look like if it put these skills at its heart? If you, if you had free reign to redesign the national curriculum so that these skills just became every day like the water that we swim in by the time we leave school, what, what would you change, Luby? Well, first start, we wouldn't have teachers. We'd have facilitators. So the role of the class, the school facilitator would be radically different already from the start. Their role would be to nurture everyone into, as Fasana said, their whole selves and enabling children to find their own pathway through their education and then supporting each other in that finding their own pathways as well so there might be like buddy systems small groups so they're all the time getting support and being supported by their peers and by other age groups in their um, school so that that would shift the whole dynamic of teacher-student relationship as well that would enable more creativity, more valuing of whatever the child wants to do. There isn't the valuing of academic subjects over practical subjects or the, the arts getting undervalued. They would all be valued by the the people themselves, by the facilitators, by their peers. So I think that would be the 
radical shift, the the renaming of the class teachers to class facilitators, and then it would just ripple down from there. It would flow from there. <laughs> Thank you. Fazana. I really appreciated that, Luby. Um, I liked dreaming into that and imagining that. I, I think there's the three C's that I like to hold when I think about radical education and transformative education, that it nurtures creativity, it nurtures critical thinking, and it nurtures connection. I think it's really important and we look at other pedagogies, other ways in which it, you know education um, can be modelled. I think that land-based education is really, really important um, and access to land as an integrated part of a children's education is really, really important. You know, right now we're having conversations around whether, you know, colonialism should be taught in, in, in education and all of these types of things. And I think connecting of narratives and histories is absolutely crucial. One, to represent generational resilience, but also to show what we don't want to be. And I think it's really important that when we're doing these connective pieces, it also generates deep sense of belonging which is really important for for us to feel to feel that we belong to one another to nurture that interdependence and that care towards planet and one another and then i think that there is also opportunities right now i think especially given the school to prison pipeline and the incredible work that folks like no more exclusion are doing there's profiling the militarization of education that children get to be children. And I think that that's really, really important. And, you know, we talked a bit about trauma work and actually you see over and over again how much those formative years of childhood are so defining in terms of the adults that we are. But in particular, and I think this is such a powerful thing for liberation work, for like the worlds that we're calling in is we create a felt sense more than we know. We create felt sense of things, felt sense of belonging, felt sense of trust in our early childhood. Before cognition, cognition is not the only way that we comprehend. The body creates those feelings. And I, and particularly when you're trying to do work, work that is nurturing, that is, you know, um, trying to disrupt violence then, and trying to make us become healthy human beings, then creating those felt sense of trust and safety is so important for the adults that we want to be. So before we we draw this conversation to a close, I'm, I wonder if people are listening to this and are inspired and would like to acquire good facilitation skills themselves, where might you suggest they start? I would start with listening, actually, as a key fundamental uh, skill for facilitation that then doesn't involve any specific training, but it involves a lot of practice because we're not trained, we're not um, invited into that listening space very often. So to really, really extend our listening with people that we're connecting with friends that we're listening to their story how can we really extend their the listening to their body language to what isn't being said to their tone of voice to the entire context of what's happening and to really just to start that expansion of our senses 
to connect in with who we're in conversation with and to really listen to our own bodies in the response of being with that other person so that we're starting to notice as well how our listening how our questions, how our attention shifts the situation, shifts what opens up in the other person and that we can do that, we can practice that wherever we're, whoever we're talking um, to, strangers in, on the bus, at the bus stop, you can practice that there. It's this informal facilitation skills that then we can start being more conscious of and using more deliberately to start with just to kind of have that mantra in your head of just listen and and just allow people's stories to unfold and wait before you ask a question to really think am I asking the question for their benefit or my benefit here can I hold back and like actually maybe I don't need the detail of that story that detail is for me but actually will divert them from the unfolding story that they've got and to actually just allow that to unfold and allow for that question that you sense will take them deeper rather than it being for your benefit. So to allow that to happen. So listening and then practice slowly the art of questioning for their benefit rather than your benefit. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Fazana. Just to build off the points that Luby um, um, kind of established for us, you know, when we are facilitating, we're allowing ourselves to hold multiple realities as if, as though they are all true and legitimate. And to be able to do that, you have to create one a capacity within oneself, and and constantly reflect on your positionality, the powers that you might hold, the privileges that are present, all of these types of things within how you're perceiving but also what is present Um, and so I think it absolutely starts with your own being and the space that you're creating in your own being to as Luby said listen and to listen and believe right like it's not listen to consume or to accumulate or because something is said but to to be able to create that sense of legitimacy is really really important I also think a lot around trust building work because great facilitations models and creates trust in a space. And that's what allows us to go into the edges that we need to. I think at the heart of that is, is integrity, like that there is a solidarity within oneself and then there's solidarity within, within the space. And so I think that's stuff that I would be paying attention towards like for good facilitation and I think organizing spaces that are not your your spaces, I think that's really important. I'm I'm I just came off a call with organizing a, across Europe with eight different Asian diasporic collectives, and it's been really powerful because you know it's largely a Southeast Asian uh, groups, and it's been su- such a huge learning for me as a South Asian, learning the different nuances, the context, what people hold, pace what people need, how people feel seen, how people feel heard, what people need to be contextualized, what people don't. And I think that the practice of context beyond your familiar is really, really important. And always knowing you're a guest, even if you're holding the space, you're the guest in the space is really important. 
Wow. Thank you both so, so, so much for joining me here today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having us, Rob. So my thanks to Fazana and Luby for this wonderful discussion and to you for listening and as ever to the brilliant Ben Adicott for theme music and production and as always do let us know what you think and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.